What's up, tribe? Hey, listen, Christmas comes early. All right, I got a little gift for you. The good folks here in the studio and I, um, we toiled for hours, 20, 30 hours, to record the audiobook version of Call and Audible, my book that came out a couple of years ago. So it is now available on Amazon, Audible, wherever you get your audiobooks. And I love to share with the tribe the first chapter. So in this part of the book, I'm a third year law student and I've figured out that I don't want to practice law and want to become a football coach. So with that, I am starting to strategize how can I find a way to land a coaching gig. I know a lot of you are probably in a similar place in your life. You know, you're working in one job and you're trying to find a way to transition into the next. So this chapter kind of gives you a sneak peek into my thought process and then sets you up for the rest of the book. So hope you enjoy. Let me know what you think. And let's get ready to tune in to the intro to my book, Call an Audible. During the summer of 2006, I was stuck on a conveyor belt that churned through Harvard Law School and made frequent deposits at corporate law firms across the country. Sandwiched between my classmates, I looked to the left and to the right for my own destination. The firms seemed indistinguishable to me. All of them shared an affinity for ampersands in their names, featured a uniformly boring clientele, and reeked of monotony. But I was a student at Harvard Law School, the most prestigious school in the universe, and people at Harvard Law School clerked at law firms. That was the arrangement. So I returned to the state of my birth, Texas, to work in the salt mines of a prestigious law firm. On my first day at one firm, a junior associate strolled into my office and asked, Hey, Darren, want to grab lunch? I was blown away. Perhaps I was on the fast track to becoming a partner? It was the first day of my clerkship, and I was already getting invitations for lunch. After barely stammering a yes... I attempted to get back to the day's work. When noon arrived, we jumped into the Associates Something Series BMW and headed to the restaurant. During an overpriced lunch at a swanky Houston steakhouse, I started asking questions about how the Associate enjoyed his work. The answer I feared most rolled right off his tongue like an easy layup. It's fine. The slight altar boy pitch accompanied by an effortless shrug, gave away his ambivalence for the work. When the check arrived, he concluded our lunch by saying, The best part about the summer is being able to eat on the firm's dime. In that moment, it all became clear. Taking a summer clerk to lunch was literally a meal ticket, and I was the write-off. Accepting my immediate fate, I did what any overachiever would do. I gorged for the rest of the summer on breakfast tacos, Kobe beef, and swordfish. I returned to Massachusetts for my last year of law school with an extra 10 pounds around my waist and a profound uncertainty about my future. 
okay, I actually gained 13 pounds. But I justified the weight gain because I had barely survived the North American blizzard of 2006 earlier that year. I was not going to be caught during the upcoming winter without a few more layers of fat. At the end of my clerkship, I sat on my couch with my eyelids shut as I hit the replay button on my summer experiences. Unlike most of my fellow summer associates, I had somewhat enjoyed my work. By enjoy, I mean that typing at my desk each day did not feel like the pain of a thousand needles shooting through my fingers. Nevertheless, I was struck by the endless reel of testimonials I had heard from young associates during overpriced and under-seasoned lunches. None of my colleagues seemed excited about their careers, and the overwhelming majority of them were truly unhappy. It wasn't just the firm that was sending them down the drain. Each seemed to have a tangible sense of regret about choosing law over another route. At some point in their lives, the internal GPS had said, take a left, but the external GPS told them that taking the right was the more practical route. Now, overburdened with sandbags of law school debt, mortgages, and private school tuitions for their kids, they were merely punching the clock and phoning it in. Like them, though earlier in the trajectory, I was also completely ambivalent about my chosen profession. And in the moment of reflection as I headed into my last year of school, my disinterest scared me. As I looked back at the pivotal moments in my life, one feeling stood out above all others. Unbridled anticipation for the next step. When I graduated from the University of Texas and boarded a Greyhound bus for the cross-country ride to an internship on Capitol Hill, my stomach did flips for the entire 1,200 miles. I couldn't wait to see the Washington Monument. Similarly, when I set foot in the Texas Capitol on my first day as a legislative intern, I was giddy with excitement. But as I reflected on my future as Darren K. Roberts, Esquire, my heart rate was nearly flatlining and nothing seemed to send it spiking. That's when I received the phone call that would turn my linear life into a Jackson Pollock production. My high school football buddy, Alfonso Longoria, had a simple suggestion. Let's take a road trip. Alfonso and I had formed a bond as players for the Mount Pleasant Tigers. Unfortunately, we were both victims of the insurmountable size deficit disorder that claims the college football dreams of so many high school players. He was a short offensive guard, and I was a skinny, strong safety. But in that moment, Alfonso was inviting me back to the sport I had divorced after high school graduation. Growing up amid the piney woods of East Texas, I was practically born with a passion for Friday night showdowns. Football games were the landmark events of my childhood. Every weekend was like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade with marching band and drumline performances. One by one, the players would enter the stadium as if conjured by some high priest of sport. First, a distant but incessant thumping would give way to a legion of band members, 
punching the Texas air with sharp notes and thuds of anticipation. Then the color guard arrived, flanking the band. Next came the dance team and cheerleaders. And then finally, the football team emerged from the locker room. I spent the autumn weeks of my childhood in anticipation of watching my hometown heroes take the field on Fridays. That my athletic skills were limited is an understatement. With average speed, average quickness, and average size, I seized the only category that could make me competitive. Work ethic. As a country boy, I didn't have a bevy of neighborhood kids with whom to play impromptu basketball and football games. If you stood on my roof and drew an imaginary circle with a half-mile radius, you would have a grand total of five potential pickup guys. Most of them were considerably older than me and had better things to do than play with a scrawny son of a preacher. This lack of playing experience created a mild form of insecurity in my athletic skills. The two driving forces in my life didn't leave much room for sports anyway. Academics and church were the uprights in the Roberts family end zone. If I wasn't at choir practice or prayer meeting or usher meeting or any other meeting for that matter, then I was probably studying. My parents didn't just read to me. They managed the Roberts School for the Boy. Writing assignments, computer projects, and themed road trips, most notably a trek across the South to visit Civil War battlefields, not football training camps, were my summer activities. Another thing that had a lasting impact was that my dad never watched an entire NFL game from beginning to end. Much of his drive-by viewing can be attributed to a schedule that called for him to visit the sick and attend afternoon services. But part of it had its roots in an honorable indifference. As the son of a Baptist preacher and an elementary school principal, I lived in a household where there was little room for deviation. Both of my parents had bachelor's degrees and placed a great emphasis on education. So while I loved football, I always knew that my boarding pass for success would be issued by academics. Knowing that I'd never play a single down in college, I turned my sights toward achieving academic excellence. I did, however, receive a football scholarship offer to Austin College in Sherman, Texas. Austin College's mascot is the kangaroo. I declined the offer. Stanford University had been my first choice since my parents had taken me to Dallas for an informational session during my freshman year. Sitting near the front of a nondescript hotel ballroom, I watched the idyllic images of Palo Alto dance across a projector screen. Ten seconds into the video, I was sold. B-roll images of kids sunbathing among Spanish-tiled cathedrals of higher education enchanted me. On the trip back to Mount Pleasant, I swore an oath to submit an early decision application to Stanford. If I got in, I was obligated to accept. Two years later, an oversized envelope from Palo Alto arrived. I got in. 
My fastest unofficial 40-yard dash time was clocked on November the 12th, 1996, as I bolted up the driveway from my mailbox to the front door. The only complication was the price tag. This shifted my focus back to Texas. As a fifth-generation Texan, I loved my state, but I was ready to leave. The University of Texas was the second option on my list, but a scholarship interview one weekend shifted my mindset. With big dreams of becoming the governor of my home state, I accepted a full academic scholarship to UT. The 40 acres, a moniker for the University of Texas main campus, felt surprisingly like home. I jumped into the throes of a liberal arts education and closed the door, or so I thought, on my romance with football. A grown man goes to summer camp. It had nearly been 10 years since I made my final play on the Mount Pleasant football team. So when Alfonso, now a high school football coach, called to invite me to join him at the Steve Spurrier football camp in South Carolina, I was immediately reminded of the smell of a freshly cut field, echoes of the drum roll before kickoff, and the uncontrollable thumping of my heart during a halftime speech. I left at the chance to re-enter the world that I had so loved as a child. By day, I was tasked with coaching fifth-grade players. By night, I was a chaperone, making sure the kids didn't break curfew. One night, as I sat with the young men in the commons area of that old dormitory, talking about girlfriends, video games, and why a lawyer-to-be was coaching fifth-graders at a football camp, I listened as a white kid from the right side of the tracks talked with a black kid from the wrong side of the tracks. As Inquisition grew into discussion, the two boys realized they had more in common than they thought. It was as if Holden Caulfield and the Invisible Man met each other for the first time, only to discover that they were actually long-lost twins separated at birth. The melanin divide evaporated as the boys discovered they were really the same person. In that moment, I felt my career dreams almost instantly morph into the desire to become a football coach. Three days working a football camp was just the reality check that I needed. My purpose had smacked me in the face. It fell in my lap, wrapped in a 13-pound pigskin oval. Back in Cambridge, a large majority of my classmates laughed at me, with the notable exceptions of Professor David Wilkins, Sean Jacob Matthew, Taj Wilson, John Matthews II, Cole Wiley, Amanda Edwards, Alex Lee, Antonia Floyd, and Diane Lucas. Back in Texas, my family members wondered if I needed to see a psychiatrist, but I kept drafting my exit strategy. Sitting at the same desk at which I had penned legal briefs, I wrote letters to football programs across the country, asking, or rather begging, for an internship. Legalese would not work. 
none of my recipients wanted to hear about the arc of First Amendment case law. This letter needed to convey my desire without coming off as a starry-eyed and naive person. It also needed to demonstrate my willingness to go broke on sweat equity. Still, I struggle. The blinking cursor just stared at me. Why was this so hard? I realized I had not written about myself since completing law school applications years earlier. Every assignment I had in law school hinged on intellectual detachment. I had spent the last three years as an observer. Now it was time to be intentional and personal. The cursor morphed into a flashing smirk. I had to fight back. And so I began to type. Dear Coach, I am a third year student at Harvard Law School and I want to become a football coach. After three days of working as a volunteer coach at the Steve Spurrier football camp, I realized that changing the life trajectories of young men can be fulfilled by coaching a sport that I fell in love with in high school. I understand that you receive countless letters each year, but I promise I will work harder than anyone else you are considering for this position. For the past two years, I have immersed myself in the study of the law in the world's most challenging institution of higher learning. This quest required that I spend sleepless nights in the library, toiling through legal cases. Notwithstanding the heavy workload, I devoted every fiber of my spirit to this academic pursuit. Now, I want to take this same work ethic to your organization. I am committed to performing any menial task at any arbitrary hour in order to add value to the team. Please consider me for an entry-level position that you may have available. Sincerely, Darren K. Roberts. I reviewed what I had written. What the hell was I doing? My classmates were headed to law firms on Wall Street and clerkships with federal judges. I was hoping to go wherever a head coach was nutty enough to let me in the building. With the click of a print button, I began a direct mail campaign to get into the NFL, sending letters to every NFL team. I searched through the online directory of coaches at every NFL team and tried to find a personal connection. Was the coach born in Texas? Did he study government in college? Any common ground that I could find was fair game. I just needed one hook. To think that 10 years earlier, I had figured my first direct mail campaign would be to fund a race for state representative. My football goal of a training camp internship was much, much lower than election of public office, but nearly as difficult to attain. A training camp intern is essentially plankton, functioning at the bottom of the food chain. The list of your potential responsibilities includes ferrying players to and from the airport, setting out cones before practice, holding tackling dummies during practice, and picking up cones 
after practice. It is not a position of glory and acclaim, but it was exactly what I wanted. Securing an internship was even more daunting given the fact that I had not played football in college, let alone in the NFL, and that I had spent the previous three years in law school. Almost as soon as I placed a letter in the mailbox, I'd receive a rejection letter. It was a rough period, but I got through it by repeating one statement upon waking up each day. Just get in the building. Gaining no traction as a training camp intern, I started searching for real openings in ticket sales departments and community relation departments. If I could just get in the building, I would outwork my peers. Remember, I was one of those try-hard guys on the football team, and I would gain a foothold in the organization. I hung signs in my apartment, get in the building. I would repeat the words to myself in the mirror 32 times after brushing my teeth. Get in the building. Get in the building. I changed the background picture on my laptop to read, get in the building. My roommate, Ernesto Martinez, was a good sport, pun intended. He casually suggested, hey, maybe we should tape the rejection letters up in your room. That way you can get used to it and it won't feel so bad. Perhaps Ernesto was right. As rejection letters continued to fill my mailbox, I drew on a formative experience from my undergrad days. To receive a customized rejection letter, visit www.rejectmenow.com. When I ran for student government president at UT, people told me I had no chance of being elected. Their justification? I was from Mount Pleasant, an unknown town, at least to them, with a population of only 12,291 people. The enrollment at the time at UT was not only the largest in the country, but it was four times the population of my hometown. Traditionally, student body presidents shared three features. They hailed from Texas metroplexes, Houston or Dallas. They were male and they were white. I was one for three. As a reminder of my low odds of winning, I wrote a simple message on my bathroom mirror. No one thinks you're going to win but you. And I won. During my senior year at UT, I applied to Harvard Law School. I applied to other schools as well, heeding the advice of admissions gurus to create buckets, wish lists, safety schools, and sure things. But in reality, I was only willing to go to Harvard. My first application was placed on hold. A purgatory where listless souls wander until their number is called. I never got the call. When I applied the second time, I made the wait list. On a whim, I decided to make a cold visit to the law school. It was 2002 and I was working on Capitol Hill for Senator Joe Lieberman. I called in sick and jumped on a plane from Washington to Boston. I sat in the lobby of the admissions office waiting to speak with someone, anyone. 
I finally got three minutes with a woman who was kind, but in a very hurry up and leave so I can keep reading applications sort of way. She assured me that there was nothing more I could do to alter my chances of getting elevated from the wait list. I thanked her and headed back to Logan Airport. And the third year, waitlisted again. At this point, everyone but my parents told me to just go to another law school. Columbia, Georgetown, NYU, and UT were all excellent options. People, none of whom had signed up to underwrite my tuition, asked, Are you too good for other schools? A recurrent argument made by my supporters was that if I kept waiting, I'd be 30 by the time I graduated from law school. My response, well, how old will I be in five years if I don't go to Harvard Law School? I couldn't change my birth date, but I could marshal every ounce of my effort to keep knocking, and I did. I wanted to go to Harvard Law School, and I was willing to wait. After three rounds of being waitlisted, I was finally accepted. So during my letter-writing campaign of 2006, I drew resolve from my record of beating the house when the cards were stacked against me. Nearing graduation, I finally received the call that I had been waiting for. Darren, this is Herm Edwards. Pause. More pause. I couldn't make my voice work. Darren? Asked Coach Edwards. Yes, Coach Edwards, I'm here, I stuttered. I don't know why you want to do this, he said. Lord knows why a soon-to-be Harvard Law grad wants to coach football. But I've got a training camp internship for you if you want it. Absolutely, I want it, I said without hesitation. Good. I'll have my guy call you to set up the details. And with that, he hung up. After the call ended, I sat on the edge of my bed and thought about what had just happened. Herm Edwards, head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, had just called me. To say that the compensation paled in comparison to the $150,000 offers of employment would be an understatement. The equation looks something like this. Zero is less than 150K. Coach Edwards' guy gave me the rundown. Here was the deal. No pay, no benefits, 18-hour workdays would be my life, but if I wanted to make it, this was my end. Although I had already placed a hefty deposit down for bar examination prep courses, I was in. I was all in. Why? In the fall of 2006, I was dumb enough to not care about the statistical challenge before me. Pivot points. Do you dream about making a dramatic change in your life or career? It is incredibly difficult for driven, highly educated young professionals who have long held visions for where they should be in their professional and personal lives to call an audible. I hope my story illustrates that if you find yourself ready to change course, you just have to put your foot 
on the very lowest rung of whatever ladder you want to climb and prepare yourself for a relentless ascent. In the chapters that follow, I will highlight the pivot points that I learned in my own climb to help you make the journey to the top rung. By no means am I so delusional as to think this process will be easy for you. Life is complicated. Mortgages, college loans, and kids are just a few of the realities that can complicate a clear path from point A to point B. But I hope my story can provide a few pivot points to help you begin that journey. Tribe, thank you so much for carving out time to listen to another conversation here on A Tribe Called Yes. I really appreciate it. Know you're busy, folks. You got things going down on your Google Calendar morning, noon, and night. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Here's my one ask of you. Wherever you consume this podcast, Spotify, iTunes, Buzzsprout, all the platforms, if you could just take two minutes to give us a review, whether it's a one-star review that says, hey, this sucks and I think you can improve by doing these things, or whether you say, hey, five stars, I love this podcast, I listen to it every week, whatever feedback you have for us, it would really, really, really Help us if you took just a couple of minutes to give us a review wherever you are listening to a tribe called Yes. So go out there, slay some dragons, no struggle, no progress, and we'll see you next week.